Hello and welcome to What the Bible Says podcast, where we seek to find answers to the questions that you ask. The goal for every podcast is to answer questions only using the Bible, as we believe the Bible is still relevant to answer questions today. Although some of the volunteers in this group attend local churches, we are not supported by any church or denomination in any way, shape, or form. We receive no funding from any congregation or organizations. Let's search together what the Bible says. Hello, and welcome to What the Bible Says podcast. We are starting a new series about being saved. The first question one would have regarding this would naturally be, do I have a part to play in my salvation? Or has my eternity already been decided by God before I was born? This episode is covering the question of predestination. Clearly, the Bible talks about the idea of predestination. However, we want to take a deeper dive into what is predestined. Is it the person who is predestined or the plan? Over to you, Brett. We want to welcome you to our study regarding what the Bible says about salvation. We're going to look at uh, quite a few topics along this line regarding salvation. We're going to be talking about grace, about faith, about works. We're going to be talking, uh, we're going to be looking at what the Bible says about being born again, uh, about conversion, calling on the name of the Lord, uh, things like this. So uh, we've got quite a few different episodes coming up. Uh, regarding what the Bible says about salvation. But we want to start with this first episode, looking at the question, is my salvation or condemnation predetermined? In other words, did God predetermine my salvation or condemnation before I was ever born, before uh, he laid the foundations of the world? You know, this is the concept behind the the Calvinistic doctrine of unconditional election. As a matter of fact, John Calvin wrote in the the Presbyterian uh, Confession of Faith, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to to pass. freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. That is Calvin, and certainly before Calvin, Augustine's view of God's sovereignty, of predestination. Calvin went on to say, and this is noted in the larger catechism, Presbyterian Confession of Faith, God's decrees are the wise, free, and holy acts of the counsel of his will, whereby from all eternity he hath for his own glory unchangeably foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, especially concerning angels and men. Now, in both of these, we see that, that Calvin's idea of predestination is that God predetermined something and foreordained it, and it is unchangeable. As a matter of fact, everything God has foreordained unchangeably. Well, that would apply to our salvation. And according to classic Calvinism, it it does. According to classic Calvinism, uh, there is no free will. And that God has ordained that we're either going to be saved or, uh, or lost arbitrarily. Uh, having nothing to do with our attitude, our love for God, our rejection of God, uh, our faith, our repentance. Uh, Classic Calvinism says none of that matters. And I believe that we need to start here in our study of what the Bible says about salvation because if there's nothing that I can do, if there is no free will and God has unchangeably uh, predetermined or foreordained that I'm either going to be saved or lost, then I don't really see any point in studying any further about salvation because there's nothing I can do to affect it, nothing you can do to affect it, and there's I don't know that there's any way that we can even know. Uh, but I don't agree with that view of predestination. Let me say clearly that without question, uh, the doctrine of predestination and election are biblical. 
But I just don't believe that the Calvinistic interpretation of predestination and election are biblical. The view of unconditional election uh, is not taught in the Bible. Now, before we go any further, we've got to take a few steps back to understand why Calvin and before him, Augustine, had these views of, of unchangeable foreordination and unconditional election. And that was because Augustine came to a view of God's sovereignty uh, that went beyond what the Bible teaches. And uh, Calvin was one of the most ardent followers of Augustine. He, Calvin really didn't start uh, what is known as Calvinism. Uh, he, what he did is he organized and systematized the teachings of Augustine, and that has come to be known as Calvinism. But in, in understanding sovereignty, again, uh, let me say unequivocally that without question, God is sovereign. 1 Timothy 6 and verses 15 through 16 he who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Speaking of God there, and specifically there of Christ, uh, he is the only potentate. That word translated potentate is a word that means one who is in a position to command others. Yes, God is uh, a sovereign in all things. In the 103rd Psalm and in verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. We're not taking issue with the fact that God is sovereign or that predestination is biblical or that election is biblical. God is sovereign. God is omnipotent or all-powerful, and he can choose whatever because that, that's really what election is. Election simply means to choose or select, and predestination means simply to decide something beforehand. God is omnipotent. He is sovereign, and he can choose whatever or whomever he wants, whenever he wants. But here's the question. Does this mean or necessitate that God must determine everything beforehand in order to be sovereign or omnipotent? Does this mean or necessitate that every choice or election of God be of individuals? Or can it also be the election or selection of a nation or a group of individuals? In Acts 9 and in verse 15, it is used regarding the selection of Paul as an apostle. And there's a form of this word uh, that is used in Acts 1 and verse 24 regarding the selection of Matthias to replace Judas as an apostle. But the choice or the selection of an apostle was not in regard to their eternal salvation. Look at Judas. So what we're realizing is that this idea of God's sovereignty to choose or to elect sometimes has to do with a group of people or a nation and it has, or even individuals, but it has nothing to do with their eternal security or salvation. You know, as we, as we already talked about, this comes from an, a concept of Calvinism uh, that uh, really originated with Augustine, that John Calvin was made famous for, for organizing and teaching. But there are a lot of people that accept cl classic Calvinism still. And the idea of the sovereignty of God is really the basis of Calvinism itself. And it is a really a, a false concept of sovereignty. Reformed theologians and Reformed theology is just another term for Calvinism. Reformed theologians take a great deal of pride in, in the lofty ways in which they speak and, and talk about God. Ben Warburton wrote, The one rock upon which Calvinism builds is that of the absolute and unlimited sovereignty of the eternal and self-existent Jehovah. Well, certainly God is sovereign, as we said, but, but this is really where we find the problem. And that is that the sovereign God of the Bible and the sovereign God of Calvinism are two very different gods. Calvinists have to redefine the meaning of the word sovereignty. You see, to the Bible-believing Christian, sovereignty simply means God's ability and right to rule the world. But to the devoted Calvinist, sovereignty means 
divine determinism. Divine determinism is the belief that God determines or causes and orchestrates everything in history according to his preconceived plan, including sin and evil. One very popular denominational preacher and writer, John Piper, is famous for saying that all things, even down to the subatomic level, are ordained, guided, and governed by God. As I said, without question, our God is sovereign. First Timothy 6, 15-16, we just read the 103rd Psalm in verse 19, uh, that, that God rules over all. But does God's sovereignty demand that if he has the power, the ability, and the right to control all things, that he must exercise that control over everything? Let me ask that question again, because this is really what we've got to determine. Does God's sovereignty, which we all agree God is sovereign, but does that sovereignty demand that if he has the power, ability, and right to control all things, that he must exercise that control over everything? In other words, does God do everything that he has the power to do? Think about that for a minute. If you say yes, and I want you to think about Matthew 3 and in verse 9. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 9, John the baptizer said to the Jewish rulers, Do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. God has the power to raise up children from the very stones on the road or, or there on, in the location where they were standing. But that doesn't mean that God did that. As a matter of fact, God did not do that. He raised up children by adoption through Jesus Christ. But John was making the point that God has the power to do this. And again, if sovereignty means that if God has the ability and the right, then he must do that. Uh, or, or the Calvinist view of sovereignty says that. But the reality is God can be sovereign by having the power and the right to do something, but choosing not to do it. It doesn't mean that he's not in control. It just means that he chooses not to determine that beforehand or not to exercise that particular ability, like uh, uh, turning stones into children. You see, Calvinism creates what we might call a false dichotomy. Calvinists erroneously believe that sovereignty is somehow synonymous with total control. So they create this false dichotomy claiming that if God is sovereign, he must orchestrate and control everything that ever happens. And if he does not control everything, he supposedly cannot be sovereign. Arthur Pink, a famous Calvinist, writes, Only two alternatives are possible. God must either rule or be ruled, sway or be swayed, accomplish his own will or be thwarted by his creatures. Calvinists equate sovereignty with causation and say that the only way for God to be sovereign is if he is the sole, ultimate cause or originator of everything that takes place, including events in the natural world, as well as human decisions. And consequently, there's no truly free will for mankind in the Calvinist worldview. And as a result, according to Calvinism, if someone commits a horrible atrocity, it's ultimately because God must have willed it to happen in the first place. Edwin Palmer, a well-known Calvinist, said it bluntly, God has foreordained everything, even sin. I want to tell you that's a horrifying thought. R.C. Sproul Jr., another leading Calvinist today, terrifyingly said, God, in some sense, desired that man would fall into sin. He created sin. I want you to think about what kind of doctrine ends up at that logical conclusion that God created sin, 
that God desired that man would fall into sin, that God foreordained everything, even sin. I can't accept that because it is unbiblical. Sovereignty is the right to rule. It is not, of necessity, meticulous rule. Historically, Christians have distinguished between God's right to rule and meticulous control. Ardent Calvinists really don't see any difference in these two, or they believe really that it is a mere formality. But New Testament Christians have always acknowledged that God is always sovereign in that he always has the right to rule in any matter but that he chooses to limit his sovereignty or his meticulous control of things. In other words, God has the ability to meticulously control everything, but in his wisdom and love for mankind, he's chosen not to determine everything yet. We find the distinction between God's right to rule and meticulous control In Jesus' prayer in Matthew chapter 6, remember in verse 10 when he was teaching his disciples to pray, he said to the Father in his prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If God is already micromanaging every detail of history, why would anyone need to pray for God's will to be done on earth? If God is sovereign de facto, in other words, He meticulously controls every element, everything, every thought. Well, then that would already be done. What's the point in praying for that? You see, biblical sovereignty, God is sovereign, but biblical sovereignty allows for free will. Any honest uh, study, uh, uh, any honest, honest student of the Bible is going to acknowledge that the Bible is permeated with the implication that God has given men the choice to serve him. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. In Romans 2 and verse 4, the scripture says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Now, if God has not given men the choice to serve him, How could God extend his kindness if people are unable to choose repentance? What about 2 Peter 3 and verse 18? 2 Peter 3.18 says to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. How can we be commanded to grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ if we're unable to choose to do so? And, And in Joshua 24 and in verse 15, Joshua 24 and 15, why would Joshua... Tell the Israelites to choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve if they couldn't actually choose. It's nonsense. It makes no sense at all. It's actually a taunting, if you will, to command people to do something that they have absolutely no ability to choose to do. In Acts 10 and in verse 34, Peter said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. I want to ask you, how could God not show partiality if he individually chooses on whom to force faith? And that's what Calvinism tells us. Faith is a gift that God either gives us or he doesn't give us, give it to us. If he doesn't give it to us, we can't be saved. How could God not be showing partiality in doing that? And in Acts 17 and in verse 30, how calloused is God if he commands all men everywhere to repent if they're unable to repent? You see that there? Acts 17 and verse 30. Now, the Bible does, in fact, teach that God is sovereign, but it certainly does not teach that God determines mankind's decisions and preordains mankind's actions. John chapter 10 and verses 27 through 28, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Some have, have used that particular passage to teach that uh, of God's control and his 
preordination, but that's not what he's saying there. He's talking about the fact that, that his sheep actually choose to give heed to his voice. They make a choice in that. And those are the ones that he knows. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 7, the Bible says, But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Not those who God has simply foreordained, but of ungodly men. In 2 Peter 2 and in verse 9, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Let's be very clear. You can be entirely dedicated to the doctrine of God's sovereignty while simultaneously being absolutely sure of mankind's free choice. As Calvin said that God from all eternity unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to pass. Let's take a look at a few passages of Scripture and see if that's even possible. In Romans chapter 13, turn over to Romans 13 and notice there in verses 1 and 2. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. I want to ask you a question. How can anyone successfully resist that which God has unchangeably ordained? This passage makes no sense. If God has unchangeably ordained it, how can anyone resist it? How can they successfully resist it? In Jonah chapter 3 and in verse 4, Jonah went into the city of Nineveh, and in verse 4, Jonah began to preach by inspiration of God, these were the words of God, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was God's statement to the people. 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's the word of God. Then in verse 10, God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. Jonah 3 and verse 10. Let me ask you something. Was this decree unchangeable? It obviously was. But, but Augustine, in Calvin's view of predestination, is that God has unchangeably foreordained everything that comes to pass. What about in 2 Kings 20 and in verse 1? You remember with Hezekiah? In 2 Kings 20 and in verse 1, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Here was another ordinance. Was it unchangeable? Well, in verses 2 and 3, Hezekiah prayed and he wept bitterly. And then in verses 5 and 6, God said, I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. Surely I will heal you. On the third day, you should go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add to your days 15 years. The change in the decree was induced by prayers, tears, and repentance. Clearly, not unchangeable. An ordinance of God, but not unchangeable. God changed it. In 1 Samuel 23, let's look at another instance here. In 1 Samuel 23, in verse 10, David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Now notice verse 11. Listen to David's question. Will the men of Keilah deliver me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said to him, He will come down. And David said, Will the men of Keilah deliver me into uh, me and my men into the hand of Saul. And the Lord said, they will deliver you. Verse 13, so David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah and went wherever they could go. Then it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, so he halted the expedition. When David 
asked God if Saul would come there and if the people would deliver him up, God said yes. David fled and Saul pursued him. Saul did not go to Keilah. So God should have said, no, David, I've unchangeably ordained that you will leave Keilah and Saul will follow you. But he didn't say that. David said, will Saul come here? God said, yes. He said, will, will they deliver me up? Will the people deliver me up to Saul? God said, yes. What we're seeing is that circumstances often determine the outcome of a situation. People's actions. We, we see that some of God's statements, command, some of his promises are conditional. Let me ask you this. In all of these accounts that we've just looked at, did God lie? If God foreordained all these events, which he said were going to happen, then did he lie each time at first? No, of course not. Circumstance controlled these events, as do most others. Circumstances have always varied God's dealings with men. And God's promises are, are often conditional. <clears throat> I want you to notice in Jeremiah 18, I think we'll see this brought out in Jeremiah 18 and verses 7 through 10. Listen to what God says here. Jeremiah 18, verses 7 through 10. God said, The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. You see that? God says, I may say that I'm going to destroy or pull down or pluck up a kingdom, but if that nation turns from its evil, I will turn from what I was going to do. And if I say that I'm going to bless a, a kingdom, a nation, a city, and it turns and does evil, I'll turn from what I said that I was going to bless them with. God said circumstances change and that therefore what he has stated will happen will also change based upon the actions of people. Think about it in Genesis chapter 6 in verses 5 through 6. Genesis 6 and verses 5 through 6, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. I want to ask you something. Did God foreordain everything that these people did? Then why did he grieve over their wickedness? when every act was the consummation of his own immutable and eternal decree. That's nonsense. Really, it would seem like God grieving over his own folly. And what about Jeremiah 7? In Jeremiah 7 and verse 31, here's what God said about the children of Israel. Jeremiah 7 and verse 31, he said, They have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my heart. God said that what the children of Israel were doing in sacrificing their children, not only did he not command it, God said it never even came into my heart. Never crossed my mind. I never thought of that. It's not that God couldn't have known. It's that he clearly chose to limit what he would foreknow about these people. What about that? God said these people were doing things that never entered his heart or mind. Would the Calvinists please tell us and tell the world how God foreordained things that never entered his mind? Because these things did come to pass. Predestination is certainly a biblical doctrine. But the question is, what did God predestinate? Let's look in Romans chapter 8. I think that we're going to see or, or begin to understand something about predestination. 
What did God predestinate? In Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 29, the Apostle Paul writes by inspiration, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become or to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now listen to that. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. God predestined, that is, he determined beforehand, that those who would be saved would be conformed to the image of Christ. We, we ask the question, what did God predestinate? That's what God predestinated. He predestinated that the people who that those who would be saved would be conformed to the image of Christ. This doesn't say that he predestined any individual, but that he predestined a certain characteristic that would be required or necessary to be saved, namely conformity to Christ. And in the context of Romans chapter 8, it speaks primarily about our conformity to his suffering. He's not talking here about predestining, uh, predestinating individuals, one to be saved and one to be lost, but God predestined that those who would be saved would be conformed to the image of his son. Let's look at another passage. Look in Ephesians 1 and verses 3 through 11. Ephesians 1 and verses 3 through 11. And I want you to pay particular attention to verse 5 and verse 11. We're going to read from verse 3 through verse 11 in Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Make sure you note verse 5 there. Now verse 6, To the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the Beloved, Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Now listen to verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now I want you to notice that God, in this context, he predestined or determined beforehand that the saved would be his children by adoption through Jesus Christ. That's in verse 5. And in verse 11, he predestined or determined beforehand an inheritance for his children who are adopted through Jesus Christ. That inheritance is an eternal home in heaven. But that's what he predestined. This text is not about God, uh, a, a predestination of individuals, one to be saved and one to be lost, another to be saved, another to be lost. This is about God predestinating or determining beforehand that the saved would be his children by adoption in Jesus Christ. That's what God predestined. God predestined the plan, not the man, the plan. When we think about the subject of election then, the election of God regarding salvation without a doubt is biblical. In 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 4 
Paul writes, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Paul wrote in Romans 11 and verse 5, even so then at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. But the question that we've got to ask, while election is a biblical doctrine, the question we need to ask and answer is, has God arbitrarily elected some men to salvation and others to condemnation? If sovereignty means that he completely controls everything and everything is by the unchangeable ordination of his will, then it would have to follow that if some are saved and others lost, God must have ordained that. But here's, here's the problem with that concept. The Bible teaches, number one, that God is no respecter of persons. Romans 2 and verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. Ephesians 6 and verse 9, he says, And you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Colossians 3 and verse 25 God said, he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. In James 2 and verse 1, he said, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Then in verse 9, he said, But if you show partiality, you commit sin. Think about that. There's no partiality with God, and if we uh, show partiality, we commit sin. In 1 Timothy 5 and in verse 21, God said through the Apostle Paul, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Why would God warn the elect against partiality? The fact that God is no respecter of persons is incompatible with the Calvinistic doctrine of unconditional election or their view of predestination, that God is unchangeably foreordained everything that comes to pass. But there's a second thing that we find very clear in the Bible that is uh, incompatible with the Calvinistic doctrine of unconditional election, and that is that God desires the welfare of all men. We're being told by Calvinism that God chooses to condemn one arbitrarily, Regardless of his attitude, uh, his love for God, or his uh, faith, that God has, has condemned this, this man, and another he has saved. God desires the welfare of all men. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4, God desires all men to be saved. In 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, God is not willing that any should perish. Think about that. God is not willing that any should perish. It's not his will that people perish. How could God foreordain unchangeably that some people perish and not be willing that any should perish? Titus chapter 3 and in verse 4 and verse 5, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior Toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Notice that the kindness and the love of God toward man, not just toward the elect, but toward all men. Election is the action of God choosing to include those who are obedient to his will, which is referred to in the Bible as the faith. God's will, or the gospel, is called the faith throughout the book of Romans. God, election is the action of God choosing to include those who are obedient to his will, or the faith, which will he foreordained. God didn't foreordain that I was going to be lost or saved. He foreordained his will. An election is God choosing to include those who are obedient to his will. That's the will that God foreordained. But this does not mean that God has chosen individuals, but instead that he has chosen where and how people may become a part of the elect. And when individuals exercise their free will to submit, to obey God, 
and his predestined plan, they become a part of that elect. The choosing does not negate man's responsibility. You know, in 2 Peter chapter 1 and in verse 10, Peter wrote, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Make your call and election sure. That's God's will. I want to look at a couple other passages before we close this study. I want to look in Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9 and verses 10 through 11, this is one of the passages that, that a Calvinist would often go to to, to see uh, some unconditional election or, or predestination and unchangeable foreordination. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 10, Paul wrote, And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And so the Calvinist says, Well, see, this was even before they were born. God decided this. What was God deciding? Was he deciding that one of those children would be saved and one of those children would be lost? Absolutely not. In, in Malachi, this quotation is from the book of Malachi. In Malachi chapter 1, I want you to notice in verses 2 through 5. In verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. Now notice this. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? So now God is going to answer that question. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now now stop right there. We're going to finish reading down through verse 5. But I want you to notice, in verse 2 he said, I've loved you. And the people said, in what way have you loved us? And in verse 3, God said, or excuse me, at the end of verse 2, God said, Jacob, I have loved. So he's saying that he loved the Jews or Israel. He's saying that when, when the scripture says that he loved Jacob, that what that meant was that he loved Israel. Jacob stood for the nation of Israel. Esau stood for the nation of Edom. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Now let's let's read on in verse 4. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus the Lord of hosts, thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness. And the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes will see and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. What I want you to see is that the, what Paul was writing in Romans chapter 9 in verses 10 through 13 was not about individuals. It was about nations. And that's the whole context of Romans 9. He's talking about the Jew and the Gentile relationship. He's talking about God choosing to include the Gentiles in the scheme of redemption, which God foreordained in the promise to Abraham that all nations of the earth would be blessed. And Paul is just affirming this in Romans 9. He's talking about nations, not individuals. So when God is saying, Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated, Malachi 1, 2 through 5 is showing us he wasn't talking about Jacob personally, individually, and Esau individually. He's talking about the nations that would come from them. Well, let's notice again in Romans 9, drop down to verse 20 and, and let's read through verse 23. In verse 20, Paul goes on and writes, But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay, from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for his glory. Now the Calvinist looks at this verse and says he's talking about individuals here. That there are some individuals that uh, are, 
are made into vessels of wrath and others into vessels of glory. And God is saying that it's, it's his sovereignty to, to make us whatever he wants, and he's going to make one condemned and make one saved. Is that what this is teaching? Turn to Jeremiah 18. Paul is quoting from Jeremiah 18. Here in Romans 9, verses 20 through 23, it's a quotation from Jeremiah 18. Let's see what he's talking about in Jeremiah 18. In Jeremiah 18 and verses 1 through 10, I want to start in verse 6, but but the context starts in verse 1, talking about the going to the potter's house and seeing him working with the clay, everything that you read there in Romans 9, 20 through 23. But get down to Romans 18 and verse 6, and here's what God says about that whole event with the potter and the clay, and one made for honor and one made for condemnation. In verse 6, he said, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. Who? Not an individual, but the house of Israel, the nation of Israel. He said, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, to destroy. If that nation against whom I've spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And and the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good which I said would benefit it. This whole text in Romans 9 and verses 20 through 23 is about nations, about Jew and Gentile, because Paul was quoting from a text in Jeremiah that was talking about nations. This is not about individual salvation. In Romans chapter 8, in verses 28 through 30, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's how they're called according to his purpose. That's what God predestined. God, notice verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he predestined, what did he predestined? That they would be conformed to the image of his Son. That's what we read earlier in Ephesians, that this is what God predestined that would be conformed to the image of his son. And so those are the ones that he called according to his purpose. His purpose was that they be conformed to the image of his son. But notice on in verse 29, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, moreover whom he predestined, these he also called. Who were those he predestined? Those who were conformed to the image of his son. These also he called. And whom he called, these he justified, their salvation. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. He didn't predestine one person to salvation and another to condemnation. He predestined a plan. And his plan was that those who would be saved are those who would be conformed to the image of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, in verses 4 through 5, Just as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Again, what did he predestine? He predestined us to adoption by Jesus Christ. That's what was predestined. The plan of how we would become his children, not individuals. Notice predestination in this text. Who? Us. Not individuals, but all the saved. Where? In him. When did God predestine this? Before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. What? What are we being, what is being predestined? the adoption of children. And how was that being done? By Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. The election that we read about in the Bible, a biblical doctrine, is that the elect 
would be those that would be obedient to God's will, which will was foreordained before the beginning of this world. That's biblical election. That's biblical predestination. That's what God predestinated. So we ask the question, is my salvation or condemnation predetermined? Before I was ever born, before this earth was created, was my salvation or condemnation predetermined? The answer is no. There, I have a choice. I have free will. And it depends upon me. God has acted. God's grace has been poured out upon me and upon you. His grace teaches us. We have the instruction of His Word. We have the good news, the message of Jesus Christ who's died for our sins. It's up to us to make that decision. It's up to us to choose the Lord. As Peter said in 2 Peter 1 and verse 10, you need to make your calling and election sure. And you can do that because you have free will in this matter. In our next episode, we're going to look at salvation by grace. That's what we're going to be talking about. We hope you'll join us for that one. But for now, we appreciate you joining us. We appreciate you being a part of this study. And we hope that you will open your Bible, turn to God's Word for the answers. That's where, that's where it will be found. What the Bible says about salvation, we'll continue this next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions about what was said in this episode or any topics you would like us to cover in the future, please visit our website at whatthebiblesays.co where you can submit your questions or suggestions. There is also a place on our website if you're interested in scheduling a more personal Bible study with one of the Christians in this group. Lord willing, see you next episode.